Two Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series, we'll look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why these ideas still matter, and what happens next. 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the publication of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Most historians suggest this event marks the start of the Protestant Reformation. In this episode, we'll look at the ideas behind the Reformation and how the use of the printing press to spread them through society was revolutionary. I'm joined by a panel of experts from Victoria University, and I've asked them to tell me their favourite reformer. I'm Jeff Troughton. I teach religious studies at Victoria, and I'll say Martin Luther is my favourite reformer. I don't feel I identify with him personally in his sense of conviction and his earnest wrestling and authority, but I think they're extraordinary uh, traits. I'm Derek woodard Lehman. I teach theology and ethics at the University of Otago. My favorite reformer is a later English radical, Gerard Wynne Stanley, who took the earlier religious ideas of the Reformation and applied them to broader social relationships, claiming that persons were not only equal before God and the church, but equal with one another in society in terms of politics and economics. I'm Catherine Walls, and I teach English literature at Victoria University. Um, On my favorite reformer, I'm going to follow Jeff, and I have to say it's Martin Luther, Uh, because, to put it very briefly, he comes across to me as a whole person. Okay, so for those of us who only dimly remember high school history, what do we mean when we say the Reformation? Who wants to take that? That's an excellent question, and it depends on who you ask. Um, Usually we mean those historical events that began, as you remarked in the introduction with Luther's 95 Theses, that initiated a series of radical changes first in church and later in society uh, that revolved around forms of authority, theological, ecclesial, as well as political, and uh, the kinds of social relationships in which people stood in both church and society. Would everyone agree with that? that I do. And and for me, uh, how people thought about themselves as, Mm -hmm. as people, it influenced human psychology. So Luther was, uh, the, when he was writing those 95 theses, he was essentially rebelling against the church in, in some of its practices. The Is it, um, not entitlements, so, indulgences. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, this idea that you could get out of doing godly things by paying the church. Is that right? Well, what Luther objected to, um, uh, yes, I mean, any... The average person would see them as an abuse because you paid money to avoid uh, doing penitential deeds uh, in recompense for your sins to get right with God. But for Luther, um, he didn't even agree that you could get right with God by doing penitential deeds. So it was much more profound than just seeing it as the abuse that it clearly was. What was the world that he was living in? What, how, how big a rebellion was that? Massive. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it it winds up being massive uh, first in the continental world of of Europe and later through various uh, other historical channels across across the globe. Um, But I think one thing that's important to remember is that the massive effect was belated and in some ways unintended. Luther began as just an ordinary Augustinian monk, a priest of the church who... uh, 
thought a couple of things weren't quite right with his community and its practices and, you know, made what initially were rather humble and modest suggestions. Uh, but because of the way they were responded to, the reaction that they elicited, they wound up being revolutionary. Um, and it's a, a series of events that leads to that, uh, what you described as a rebellion. Um, and he stopped being humble uh, well, at, yeah. at one level. <laughs> I mean, he might have been inside himself very, very humble. And he was gorgeously self-deprecating and Mm self-doubting. But at the same time, um, uh, when he went to the Diet of Worms to explain his views and probably get um, uh, charged with heresy and burnt at the stake, although that didn't happen, Mm -hmm. he compared himself with Christ. So there was that strange thing about Luther, this massive personal conviction, but combined with what you're talking about, this humility uh, sense of total and, and, in fact, extreme humility that is unimaginably humble at at one level. So this is, for me, one of the fascinating things about him. And in a way, do you think that that uh, sense of his own inadequacy actually inspired um, his courage and his what we would now see as self-assertion? So his key ideas come out of this intense period of self-examination and mm. wrestling and, mm. and going to the Bible and trying to find in it the clues to his own existential questions as mm. well as his questions about mm. the state of the church around him. So mm. I think Derek's right that he stands in this tradition of internal critique within the mm. church. Mm. It's not new for for church members to criticise their institution and to to wrestle with theological and and social problems. But enormous things are at stake when this clash with papal authority comes to a head. But he's a remarkable figure in that combination, as you say, Catherine, of of self-doubt and introspection, but an extraordinary sense of authority and conviction when push Mm. comes to shove. He stands on on um, his insights and his mm. convictions, and it's got an, a strong intellectual component, mm-hmm. but but not in an arid way, so that there's huge emotional force mm-hmm. in it as well. Mm. I mean, it has been suggested that um, a, you know a psychoanalytical perspective on Luther was that he rebelled against his father in order to go into the monastery. And live because a he was life. studying law or something before he that, wasn't had he? been. You're right, and that's what his father wanted him to be. He was an up and coming sort of wealthy miner. Wanted his his son to be um, a lawyer uh, and move up the social scale on the uh, family um, prosper- basis of the family's prosperity. But instead, he goes into a monastery, lives a life of abstinence and penitential deeds to an extreme extent and then rebels against the Pope on the very grounds that these penitential deeds and so forth were completely useless. So could you even get a greater contradiction than that? But what the common feature in both of them is the courage to rebel against the authority, the real father and then the holy father. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've talked a lot about in this series is uh, this idea of uh, of one person changing the world, of, of a revolutionary. Did he have a sense at the time that that's, that's what he was doing? Did he know he was changing the world? I think he began to. Yeah, I, I think if we look at these great historical figures or these uh, immense historical events 
from from a perspective that sort of says, well, on Tuesday in about 1520, Luther woke up and decided he was going to change the world and then carefully went about doing that. Uh, That's just a a mistaken uh, retrospective viewpoint. That's the way movies sometimes Mm -hmm. tell the story, but that's not the way uh, the story actually happens. It's it's much more of an emergent and effervescent uh, phenomenon and as your listeners will no doubt recognize by my voice, I'm American. So you could say the same with the American Revolution. Uh, sometimes in early history courses in primary school, it sounds the same way. George Washington and Tom Jefferson met in Virginia one day and decided they were done with this King of England thing and you know, went on about it, you know, first this, then that, and the other thing. And it's, it's a much more complicated, a much more conflicted uh, process that – you know, a little a little move here, a little move there, uh, add up to this momentous thing, but it's not um, undertaken with clear clear foresight. Did he have a sense that he was leading something though? Like, did he have followers in that way? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this wonderful charismatic personality that he had. Um, and so, when he went to the Diet of Worms, he he and his colleague. Uh, was it Karlstadt that went mm-hmm. with them? They were accompanied by 200 students from the University of Wittenberg. Groupies. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then once he was married and living in his own uh, home, um, it was like a hostel. People came and stayed and wrote down everything he said, laughed at his jokes and so on. So, yeah, he had that human support that he got through, I think, the power of his personality. Mm-hmm. So how do we get from uh, an Augustinian monk in Germany mm-hmm. to everything that follows? <laughs> what happened next in the in the Hollywood movie movie version of the story? Well, I mean, I think a really important thing was that um, he um, he courted um, death uh, by continuing um, to um, to speak against the Pope. But it didn't. Um, this didn't happen thanks to the political situation, uh, thanks to the protection of Frederick the Wise, who was the Prince of Saxony. That's a great um, title, Frederick the yeah. Wise. Yeah, nice work if you can get it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, although I don't think he was convinced by by Luther's thinking, um, he protected Luther out of a spirit of. Um, parochialism, nationalism against the Italians. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, the, there's this curious and contentious intersection between the religious and the political. So on the one hand, Luther is undertaking these reforms in his own Christian life and his own teaching and ministry as a monk and an educator. These are having wider effects such, such that he's gathering a, a following. And at the same time, in the political realm, there's a growing dis-ease between the Holy Roman Empire and the, mm. the papacy and the local mm. principalities and princes who are looking for a little more uh, autonomy and independence. So uh, if you're a cynic, then the political figures like Frederick are opportunistic. They seize on Luther's religious reformation and co-opt it to their own purposes or if you're cynical on the other side, Luther uh, coldly and calculatingly sidles up to powerful political figures to advance his own purposes and you know, the truth is probably somewhere in between. There's a measure of sincere conviction mixed with uh, some very necessary prudence. You know, Luther's trying to hold his convictions firmly but also hold on to his life. 
You know, he doesn't want mm, to doesn't, be burned mm. at the stake, so it doesn't hurt to have Frederick the Wise and others uh, sort of on your side. And there are all these great anecdotes about him being hidden in castles and smuggled as a peasant uh, through dangerous highways and, and, mm. and, and the like. But, I mean, Henry VIII is the big example of the cynical um, supporter of, of, of Lutheranism because he could see um, um, how... Um, how Luther's emphasis, uh, which was, of course, connected with his opposition to the Pope, on secular authority would give him a justification for breaking with the Pope and becoming head of the church and increasing the power of the Tudor dynasty. Mm-hmm. So, collecting you know, that's, a fair bit of wealth from the monasteries and yeah, other places. Yeah, the monastic wealth. Yes. So we should so, explain how Henry VIII gets in here. So he used Luther to essentially say, I want to, I want... I'll run the church. I want to run the church. Essentially, so he he could get divorced or... Um, yes, mm-hmm. he wanted a... to get divorced, but he wanted to run the church as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, seizing the church's substantial assets That's was not a uh, inconsiderable collateral huge. benefit to the then sincere re- conviction of becoming caught up in, in Luther's mm-hmm. reformation. Then he could reward uh, loads of magnates in England and... Uh, and, uh, and bolster you know, his political power. By their loyalty, in yeah. effect. Yeah. Yeah. That so. process was repeated elsewhere. That's a very stark example, mm, but the, 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 the development of the Protestant movement depended on this a religious conviction finding protection and support from particular princes or people who would uh, enable the, the movement to continue because obviously the opposition of mm. uh, the papacy meant it was always under threat, the, the development of that movement. So it mm. always re- required a protector of, of a kind. So this religious and political uh, development all goes hand in hand throughout Europe. And those who didn't have it really suffered. Yeah. So, for instance, you asked at the beginning, when did the Reformation start or what is it? We've neglected, you know, a couple centuries of earlier reform efforts and what's mm. uh, often termed the Radical Reformation, the Anabaptists who wanted to put open water between church and state, didn't want to be under the pope or the king and were uh, committed in a radical way to uh, evangelical, that is, gospel-based poverty and and pacifism. And they weren't the types to sidle up Mm. to or to find the favor of wealthy and powerful patrons. And they were the ones who in in large numbers wound up in prisons and at the stake. But they were greatly influenced by Luther. Mm -hmm. So this is is the terrible paradox. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is one of those things where you sort of uh, looking. You know, we're, we're talking about I don't know it, it, the, the church and political power and stuff, but but people really did suffer here. Where there were peasants' revolts, all these sorts of things, like and people being burned and hunted down, and there was there was a lot of violence that went along. The with The peasants' as well. revolt might have happened without Luther, mm-hmm. um, but um, but it really put Luther on the spot um, uh, because his opinion was sought about it. I mean, this is how I suppose he he had become a leader, whether he wanted to be or not. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. And of course, he he was worried about sedition. And uh, so people often see this, don't they, as uh, a self contradiction on Luther's part. But I'm not so sure. Sedition is different from uh, a matter of religious thought. Yeah, Luther constantly had to distinguish his position from those attributed to him by opponents and even those mm-hmm. taken up under his banner, under his name by his his followers, you know, and these ranged from 
relatively minor incidents of, you know, rowdy students breaking into Catholic masses and disrupting the service and mocking the priest and knocking over the, you know, accoutrements of, of, of the liturgy to, you know, outright sedition where at least in part under the inspiration and uh, using Luther as their authorization, people were taking up arms against their neighbors and against their, their rulers and whether out of sincere conviction or cunning and prudence, Luther decided that he wouldn't side with the, the peasants in in the revolt and would instead side with the princes. And um, to those of us looking back with uh, hindsight and retrospection, uh, penned some fairly violent and vicious critiques of the, the peasants, which sort of gave the political authority um, – Almost carte blanche to put them down and hunt them Mm. down uh, like dogs. But he did think that and said that he thought the peasants were wrongly oppressed. Right. Um, He recognised that. But but he was, uh, you know, he couldn't have been, could a a political revolutionary, I don't think he could imagine um, a world in which um, the prince wasn't in charge. No he one was in charge. No, right. that would just be anarchy and and absolutely dreadful. And maybe it would have been too. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the tricky ones again to think about the great ideas of the Reformation in our time. Uh, for those of us who have the benefit and blessing of living in relatively well ordered societies with the rule of law, it seems a no brainer to take the religious protest and parlay it into a political protest, which surprise surprise would give us convictions much like our own. Uh, But if you think about it from the perspective in our time of, say, someone living in Iraq or Syria where chaos and disorder are running rampant and the consequences are devastating, trading some bit of freedom or justice for order and safety might strike us as a more sensible compromise. Um, And I think in Luther's day, his political and social situation was probably more comparable to the one I just laid out, say, in, in Syria and Iraq, where order was at a premium and freedom and justice were uh, perhaps hmm. able to be bartered away for the safety and security that More comes. More than that, I think. I don't think the concept of freedom was even available. I was going to say, those were nascent ideas. There wasn't a concept of yeah. freedom and justice at and that point. Luther, for Luther, freedom was an internal matter, mm-hmm. allowing um, him to be himself mm-hmm. um, as, uh, but um, but the, the, and and in order um, to express himself, he wanted uh, freedom, but he didn't um, expect it, and he yeah it wasn't a principle or an ideal. The the idea that um, uh, it should be the Bible and not the church that uh, was the source of religious authority. Just how revolutionary was that? How how big a deal was that? Well, that's huge because it puts it in the mind of the individual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. It, it's a it's a the the debate about the the role of tradition, the teaching of the church, the nat- the, the question of the Bible the, is a really important one. It's critical in Protestantism. This focus that when there's a debate, when you get caught between what tradition's saying and what the plain text of Scripture seems to be saying, that you trust the authority of the Bible, that, that's a big step. And it means that 
um, you do trust individual conscience and you open up all kinds of new readings, new conflicts <laughs> about what the Bible yeah, might be saying. Exactly. This we proliferation yet, of, <laughs> well, that's one of the consequences of Protestantism is this proliferation of, of institutional forms of Christianity that are dizzying and impossible to stops. keep up with. It, yeah. mm. it, it opens up a, a new kind of fragmentation but it's also tremendously powerful affirmation of the individual and of individual conscience uh, that, that flows off into much of what we think about as the, the grounds of modernity. Uh, they're found in these kind of commitments and this transition, uh, the, the, the changing locus of authority to the Bible and individual conscience. Because Luther thought that other people would read the Bible and come to exactly the same conclusions uh, that he came to, but of course that didn't happen. Yeah, as, as a matter of theology, you know, the the theological principle is that God in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will bring consensus among the lay readers of, of, of Scripture that if God is with each of the individuals in a community and they sit around and read the Bible and argue it out amongst themselves that somehow consensus will emerge. But of course, that's too neat uh, a picture and doesn't <laughs> factor in didn't. all the social <laughs> and material conditions. That, um, yeah, I mean, so one of the sort of cocktail party knocks on Protestantism is, oh, great. So you went from one pope over millions of Christians to millions of Christians who are all popes, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of a well, tongue-in-cheek exactly. way of that's putting what the Luther, And Luther, in, in a sense, anticipated that with the concept of the priesthood of all mm-hmm. believers, which mm-hmm. is, a, again, it's, it's, it's like um, the idea about the Bible. It's just such a movingly extreme and wonderful idea, to my mind. Well, this notion that uh, the idea of a priest is somebody who mediates, right? And so the idea that you, you're you all priests, all mediating, um, mm. you know, the grace of God comes directly to you through Christ and that you can mediate God's work or, or be a, an agent of God's work in the world, that that's something for everybody uh, there's an extraordinary claim and transformation about how how mm. religious community works. Mm. And, and religious... it puts huge responsibility on the individual in mm. the individual's own mind. Mm. And that has flow-ons, again, from outside of religious life. Mm-hmm. If you allow people to have individual thought and individual ideas and all of these things, they're going to start having individual political ideas right. or, or economic ideas, all mm. these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Did, did we see that happen? Yes. I mean, mean, depending on how you want to tell the story, either the Reformation idea that you just brought up about the priest of all all believers either runs alongside or even runs ahead of the the democratic idea of, you know, one one person, one vote, that leadership in the political sphere isn't the hereditary prerogative of elites uh, with names like Medici and Habsburg, but belongs to anyone who's a a member of whatever political community uh, is in question. So... Uh, depending on how you tell the story, it's the Reformation that anticipates the revolution or, you know, the revolution that completes the Reformation. And these are contested ideas and they mostly have to do with what the ongoing and present place of religion in public life is or or is not. But. And you mentioned Win Stanley and his mm-hmm. idea that equality came out of this as well, that, that the idea that you mm-hmm. weren't just equal in the church, you were mm-hmm. equal everywhere. Yeah, and this is one of the things that the political elites were were worried about if uh, if the peasant is my brother or sister in the church, then that suggests to me that they might not be able to be my servant or subject 
yeah. in the political sphere. And again, in, in later contexts, we, we run into the same problem in, in the United States with chattel slavery. Um, slaveholding religionists were very clear and explicit that baptizing a slave did not change their political status. Of course, the religion of the slaves was very clear the opposite that, well, if I'm baptized in Christ like you are, then we're equal. And, you know, so these these ideas go back and forth and are used in, in different ways to either um, legitimate domination or, or to resist it. And Martin Luther King was born Michael King. Mm-hmm. Uh, named after his father. His father went to Germany and came back and decided to call himself Martin Luther King and to call his son Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. So it makes that point, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, so there's there's one way to think about this. We talked earlier about this idea of, of freedom. You can you can talk about an arc of the development of the concept of freedom that nicely runs from Martin Luther to Martin Luther King. Mm. The, the notion of equality is really important in this development of mm-hmm. democracy democratic cultures, um, this, but it, it's uh, complemented, I guess, in Protestant theology by, you know, people are not just sinners, uh, not just saints, they're not just mm-hmm. created equal in the image of God, but they're also sinners. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of constraints on human tendency to egoism and, and evil that needs to be there. And so democratic culture is formed in the Protestant way of thinking mm-hmm. by both of those impulses, that it's not only about equality, but about the need to contain and restrain the, the kind of evil that um, people perpetuate. So it, I think it's important to mm-hmm. keep that mm-hmm. sort of counterbalance and thinking about the Protestant Yes, and that, that introspection that um, is, is really self-analysis, isn't it? And um, a sort of when you compare that with, with confession, where you can tell somebody all the things you did wrong, that's, that's gone, really. And instead you have to do it to yourself, and that's much more demanding and difficult. And it comes, also comes back to that idea of, of the need for order, the, the, mm-hmm. um, the, what's the word I'm looking for, the division between the need for order and safety as opposed to freedom and equality, that, you know, if you, if you say people are sinners, that gives you a way to, to maintain that order as well. Yeah, if, if equality and liberty aren't constrained by justice, then the equality and liberty of the many will oftentimes trump pun intended, the equality and liberty <laughs> of the few, as we've seen in recent political events. So uh, there's this deep tension, if not contradiction, in, in, in democratic culture about the sanctity and equality of individuals and how they choose of their own volition to aggregate themselves into different organizations and interests and, and so on and so forth with the need to protect the, the rights and the liberties and the interests of um, of at least, you know, various kinds of minorities, whether those are cast as simply electoral minorities or are cast along lines of race, ethnicity, religion, uh, Mm -hmm. sexuality, and so forth. And it's a tricky thing in a democracy to calibrate uh, because you're always trading some bit of liberty to try to maintain equality. You're constraining other people's freedom in order to uh, uh, uphold... Mm -hmm. um, Yes, people were very free in in, um, reformed – in the reformed countries, um, in Calvin's Geneva, for Mm -hmm. example. I mean there was an expectation of the reformers that the state would impose um, uh, laws consistent with Christian morality. So isn't that idea relevant 
in 2016-17. Mm. Um, the other thing that, that was revolutionary about this was the use of the printing press mm-hmm. and how these ideas were, um, were disseminated amongst the population. So how did that work? Well, I mean, it was just lucky coincidence if you're thinking from the point of view of, of somebody with an idea that they want to, to spread. And for the printers, it was also a lucky coincidence because um, people were hungry for it. Yeah, so where the, I suppose the, um, as it were, the uh, ancestor, or that's not quite the right word, of, of Luther would have been the Huss, mm-hmm. wouldn't it? But of course Huss was burnt at the stake. Um, it, it didn't really come to anything uh, nearly so massive, but he didn't have the printing press. So, yeah, that was, and, and also um, the use of the vernacular. So, with that. so it's literally being able to print pamphlets and, and yep. send them out to people and, mm-hmm. and, and preachers having pamphlets that they can use to talk off and, and giving them to... Because presumably not everyone could read at this point, right? Well, this is another, I suppose, uh, uh, aspect, which is humanism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The increasing emphasis on education, and Luther himself was very keen on education and, and highly educated himself... Um, but but the humanists were who, who were promoting education weren't necessarily supporting the Reformation, but they they were laying the foundations of it, and their emphasis on reading, on the ability to translate. And all of this becomes a massive part of the legacy of the the Reformation that we live with and take as take for granted, take as normal about um, mass education, mass literacy, mm. reading uh, in vernacular language. Mm. All of this stuff comes out of this very strong drive within Protestantism to get things into text, to, to translate the Bible into vernacular language so that mm. ordinary people can read, not just mediated mm. through um, you know, people who have specialist skills or specialist authority, but everyone mm. read. And the Bible becoming part of devotional life, da- daily reading of the Bible, um, daily reading of of offices, of, of prayer and such like. Would that people have had a Bible in their house? It becomes much the more normal. The family Bibles start to become important in the wake of the Reformation, but access to the text of Scripture is mostly, for most people would have been uh, something that you heard or saw visually represented rather than something that you could read for yourself. But this huge drive is not only in the translation of the Bible and dissemination of that, but literature generally becomes really important. So the literate revolution flows out of this. And, you know, Luther has this extraordinary place in German culture, not simply as a religious figure, but as a cultural figure and and the... um, his mm-hmm. you know promotion of the German language mm-hmm. and arts and culture yes um, and the I mean it's interesting Luther himself did not um, mind religious imagery um, if it was um, viewed in the right way um, he didn't want people having an emotional response to images as if they were uh, saints who could somehow mediate between people and God. But he he wasn't an iconoclast, but, um, of course, his followers, many of his followers were. And so you get this big contradiction between the image, all that glory of medieval culture, 
of the the visual character of, of medieval culture, which is such a wonderful uh, aspect of it. But you get a conflict between that and really the black and white of the word mm. and as the printed word, not very attractive at all compared to medieval manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Mm. Although that, it's a funny thing about Protestantism that it does develop its own iconographies, right? Yes. And, and, you know, even Bibles start to be illustrated in time. <laughs> and, you know, you get these forms of oh, image yeah. that are acceptable and it develops. There's not so a, what's a pro, what, what is a Protestant iconography? Well, so even it. even with the, the, the Bibles that start to become illustrated during the 19th century and such like, there's an a, a American scholar who's done this marvellous study of the, the kinds of images that um, Protestants would have in their home. So like images of the head of Christ or of, um, you know, what's the famous, the light of the world, um, Holman Hunt's oh, image. Yes. Like, this mm. became a massive uh, Protestant conversionistic image, like trying to use this but, as a way to... Yeah, to, hey, but you, isn't this one of... This is something that really annoys me. Yeah. People forget <laughs> the religious traditions that, um, that, that their um, religion has come out of. And I don't mind what what religion anybody is, but I can't stand it when they're not interested in the origins of the of the particular group they belong to. I was horrified when St Andrews on the Terrace had stations of the cross, paintings <laughs> representing the stations of the cross. They, don't these people know where they come from? <laughs> thus spake an, thus spake an <laughs> academic. <laughs> there might be another reformation going on, Catherine. <laughs> Maybe there is. This is one of the interesting bits of the fallout of the Reformation is there's this sort of move towards an emphasis on lived theology, what ordinary practitioners and mm. adherents do, and it sits at an increasing distance from learned theology, the stuff that people in universities do, and there's always this sort of uh, back and forth over, you know, will the real Catholicism or will the real Methodism please stand up? And is it what the ordinary pew sitters do in their practice, or is it what the official academic or clerical elites say? And it's just, it's just give and take. Um, and one of the tricks, I think, and we, we but we could say the same about democratic culture. Um, you know, most people know to turn up on a certain day to press a button or fill in a, a ballot and cast their vote, but they likely don't know how that came about or when it happened. And um, I think you're you're right, Catherine, to say that there's a certain impoverishment of political and religious tradition when the present practice is dissociated from its historical historical roots. But I, I think there's a, a deep impulse that comes from the Protestant Reformation to um, hold those roots uh, somewhat loosely and not sort of make the present practice hidebound to the mm, history and precedent. It doesn't precedent. have to, does it? You're nodding the no right? Part of the, part of the idea of the Reformation yeah, is a no constant Protestant Reformation. Right. Like, it's yeah. not no one fixed mm. end point with that. Yeah. You can see, though, how that is just utterly a revolutionary idea for anyone, and it's a theme that has come through a lot of, a, a lot of these episodes, is this individualism, this idea that, I guess, the buck stops with you. Yep, think for and, and think for yourself. And can we see this playing out now? You mentioned Trump, Derek. Can we see these ideas continuing to play out in the 21st century? Sure. Um, I don't know if we want to go across the ocean to America to, to look look to an example. But I, I think um, we've talked at several points about uh, this idea of vernacularization, of taking the 
holy writings of scripture out of a learned language, Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, and putting it into the ordinary language of whatever particular locality um, uh, we, we sit in. I think that one's particularly relevant in, uh, in a context like New Zealand where we have a treaty that tells us we're a bicultural, social, and political community. We have emerging practices, um, some of which are fledgling and faltering, some of which are are well-established. But uh, a recent example is that the Anglican Church here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has recently uh, put together a revised Book of Common Prayer that doesn't just take Maori linguistic and cultural elements and sort of tack them on as an addendum to the Book of Common Prayer from, you know, the Church of England way back when, but tries to make both communities and both uh, cultural expressions uh, equal and substantive partners in their in their liturgical life. So I think one great idea of the Reformation that might be particularly relevant in New Zealand's uh, setting, not just as a matter of church life and religious life, but as a matter of public life, is this idea of the vernacular and the prominent place to indigenous culture, whatever that culture might be, in properly expressing the identity of a community in its various uh, uh, forms and practices. Jeff, you're nodding again. I was actually just thinking about your comment earlier about the um, the, the strong uh, impetus for individualism and thinking how actually how Protestant communities in different ways have tried to fight against that, like there's individualism but then there's still communities and how do you mm. operate in community life when you have this intense uh, individualism and that's actually one of the challenges of modern life yeah. I think is that that real tension between very strong um, individualism of identity mm. and people reinventing themselves constantly um, and, and how to develop, cultivate community life. So you know, the, the Radical Reformation or the Anabaptists were very strong on this, this idea of uh, not just individual readings but coming together to read the Bible together and to come to agreement about what the text says. And so different Protestant groups tried to formulate ways of being together and cultivating a social life and community life together, mm. and yet that individual strand runs through. It's not mm. quite the point that you were making. Well, there, a, but... a very powerful idea for me um, associated with the Reformation is the idea of the invisible church, so that um, this was an idea that allowed um, uh, serious-thinking people in England under Elizabeth, for example, to live with the um, the church as established by Elizabeth, um, because they felt they be- they belonged to um, th- that that church could contain hypocrites. It could even be um, promoting some dubious um, practices. Um, but even that church itself recognised that it was not the church. It was not the community of the saved. And I, I, I think that's a, actually quite a useful idea. Sometimes I like to think um, uh, that I belong to an invisible university as well as a real one. And it How does allowed, the university, it, the real one, feel the, about that? The, <laughs> because the invisible one is the ideal of the university in my own mind, and the real one is a, an attempt to be that. Um, and, yeah... That's a useful idea. I think, from that, the I think that comment for circles me. back to your earlier remarks about Luther and this interesting paradox or tension between a striking 
conviction that at times borders on hubris mm. and a equally striking humility to say that, well, there is a true church and it requires reformation and here's how it goes. But also with the invisible church putting a little bit of humble distance between identifying any particular phenomenal historical instantiation as the real deal, period, full stop. And so, again, I think it's that interesting Luther, Lutheran uh, paradox of of humility and conviction that, that comes through in that, in that great idea as well. There's also, is there a parallel to be drawn between the, the technological revolution of the printing press and the technological revolution that we're having right now of, or have been having for the yeah, past I mean, 15, 20 years of, yeah. of, of the so, internet? So Luther lives at a time when the printing press first makes the word of God locally available to people. We live in an era of WordPress that makes our words globally available to all the people in the world. And I think uh, recent political revolutions throughout uh, the world, particularly in the Arab Spring and more recently in South Africa and in the United States with these hashtag-based social movements in the United States, Black Lives Matter in South Africa, a series of hashtag fees must fall, mm-hmm. you know, Zuma mm-hmm. must fall. So I think the electronic revolution of social media is um, formally similar to the uh, the material revolution of, of the printed printed word and the printing press at, at Luther's time. And it wasn't just the Bible that the printing press was making mm-hmm. available. It was the ideas of people like Luther. I think right. it's 50 plus volumes in the American edition of mm-hmm. Luther's yep. works. And then <laughs> How later did he do the, it? And then later in the UK and the US, you have the pamphlet wars. You know, you have people like Edmund Burke and Mary Wollstonecraft, Tom Paine, where uh, in the same way that we might think about blogs or tweets, these these men and women were churning out, you know, literally by hand cranking these 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 printing presses to get common sense or the Declaration of the Rights of Women for Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, and then standing out on corners like buskers and you know shilling these things out to try to disseminate these radical and revolutionary ideas that have transformed our, our society. I'll just throw my pitch for a movie based on the life of Mary Wollstonecraft in here because she's amazing and more people should know about her. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I think that's interesting about the, um, the idea of a, a current revolution in technology is that these revolutions in technology do go with spiritual revolutions revolutions as well and reformations. Are we that, having a spiritual re- revolution right now? Well, there's lots of calls for them. Lots of claims for them. Yeah. Whether yeah, or not yeah, we... That's right. But the technology changes the way people think and changes their cultural and social context and the, the kind of spiritual responses and religious responses to those are they're necessary, right? Mm. Uh, churches are reconfiguring themselves uh, religions generally are, are kind of thinking about how they adapt and respond to a world that uh, is different. Mm. You know, one of the things we, we're recording a, um, a church service for Christmas Day uh, at the moment, and I was looking for some contacts for the very small church up in South Auckland that we're recording at. And the church itself doesn't have a website, but all the individual parishes have a Facebook page because mm-hmm. that's the way to communicate <laughs> with the congregation. Which I feel like is there's absolutely an analogy there, right? That that's the way to communicate directly to the people that you want to talk. To. Well, in yeah, fact, I mean, Luther you... would have been a, a Twitter fiend probably had he been, <laughs> been around now. Rather, I bet rather there is then. a Luther Twitter account. Well, the, the table talk thing is a bit like yeah, that, it isn't is. it? People sitting down, writing down things Luther said spontaneously mm. uh, and recording them for posterity. Yeah. yeah. And the critiques of culture would be going on from mm-hmm. Luther as well and critiques of the religion that's there yeah. <laughs> in front. Like, uh, the Protestant, Protestant Christianity has tended to be quite quick adopting of change and so you see 
um, Protestant movements that embrace technology and explore different um, things like the Evangelicals, the Pentecostals, Brian Tamaki, Prosperity mm, Gospels. Like you see radical transformations yeah. of actually about yeah. what a religious community and religious ideas are as, as cultural response. Protestants have been very much at the edge of these sorts of changes. And, and as, the, as the saying goes, the medium affects the message, and it sometimes it is the message. And <laughs> yeah, one has to take stock of how medium and message are, are interacting and whether that's to good or ill effect. Yeah, not, not everyone that I've mentioned should be necessarily regarded as a Luther <laughs> figure. But. <laughs> it's interesting when you're doing academic research and you want texts um, instantly on your, on your screen – if they're religious, it can be anything from St. Augustine um, through Luther, Calvin, etc., etc. Um, all of these texts are easily accessible on the web mm-hmm. because they are religious texts. And it's that sort of evangelical impulse that means that they're just, it's just fantastic what you can get. But when you move into other realms, it's not as easy. Mm-hmm. But anything religious is free. Mm. What I mean, one of the themes that have come through is that um, revolutions never finish. And I guess the interesting idea about this is that all of these things, human rights, equality, what actually, you know, what actually your religion is, what what God talking to you means, all of these, we're still trying to figure out. We still, we, there are no answers to these questions, the questions that Luther posed. There, there are no answers, right? At least not final once and for all answers. I mean, you have... Provisional answers, uh, answers given along the way. And this is, again, I think another uh, characteristic of Protestant religiosity. Um, as Karl Barth, one of the great Reformed theologians of the 20th century, uh, involved in the resistance of uh, Hitler and the Nazi movement, uh, always and again in his work um, would talk about a theologia viatorum, a theology on its way a pilgrim journeying, wayfaring theology, uh, which I'm not sure if he had this in mind, but I think harkens back to Luther's um, sometimes secretive, other times public shuttling back and forth between Wittenberg and Worms and, you know, on the highways and byways of, uh, of what would eventually become Germany. Um, and as a monk was himself a kind of a, a pilgrim and a theologian on the way um, without ever claiming to have finally reached the destination. I think that that Protestant principle of being directed back to an authority, that the individual becomes really important, but the the sacred text of Scripture provides a guide, and it's to be mined and it's to be um, wrestled with. As fresh questions arise, as culture changes, as institutions shift, what does scripture say? That provides a kind of framework for wrestling with the um, the way forward. There's provisionality, but there's a kind of a method. There's a, to try and work through the, the questions. And I think the 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 principle of uh, the death of Christ, the, the redeeming work of of Christ, that's all there within Protestantism. Mm. But there's so much to um, to wrestle with as culture and society changes. But there's also a way in which the Reformation leads beyond religion. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people attribute the scientific revolution to the Reformation, to the increased rationality that um, that that came with studying the Bible and that came with rejecting 
what was seen by the reformers as the hocus pocus of religious ceremonial, so that you can you can see the Reformation, yeah, yeah, leading into into um, into a scientific mentality, both in relation to the Bible, but in relation to the world. My thanks to Dr. Jeff Troughton, Professor Catherine Walls, and Dr. Derek Woodard Lehman. Great Ideas was made in association with Victoria University of Wellington. It was engineered by Phil Benge with production from Adam McCauley, and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes and more of RNZ's podcasts at rnz.co.nz. Thank you.